All right, good morning, everybody. So we're going to be continuing uh, a sermon Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be studying 27 through 38. And uh, this sermon here, we, we talked a little bit about it in terms of an overview and introduction last week, that this sermon is very similar to in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, but this seems to be a sermon Jesus taught at a different time and setting. And it's much more focused on grace, on living by the rule of God's grace, uh, living as an embodiment of the grace of God. Whereas Matthew more in Jesus' sermon is speaking to the fulfillment of the law and things that progressively fulfill the law in our personal lives. Uh, just like I did last week, I'd like to read through this whole sermon uh, before we talk about a specific section. I think that would be very helpful. But at the end of this sermon, Jesus emphasizes that this is fundamental. So we'll see at the end of the sermon in verse 46 through 49 that these instructions are the foundation for his disciples. And I want you to think, when you think of the term fundamentals, if you're thinking about basic teachings of the Bible, what, what comes to your mind? Uh, maybe church things in terms of how we should worship, salvation things in terms of baptism. Uh, and so I think it's helpful to, to think that if I am thinking about fundamentals, my mind needs to go here and start here. All right, so let's start in verse 20. This is after Jesus has chosen the 12 apostles and is still near the beginning of his ministry in verse 20. Turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are the poor. Your translation may say, you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and exclude you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers were doing the same things to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who disparage you. I think uh, Paul was using the New King James that, say, that says, those who spitefully use you. I appreciate that translation. Verse 29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your garment, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting, and again, uh, the New King James says, hoping for nothing in return. Your reward will be great, you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. 
Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. And he also spoke a parable to them. Can a blind man guide a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a bramble bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Now why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug and went deep, and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the river burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who heard and did not do accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Now we're going to be looking at, obviously, verse 27 through 38. And I want you to think about these instructions in terms of how challenging they can be with the idea of rehabilitation. You know, in verse 40, Jesus gives us some insights for the goal of this year. Every disciple being fully trained, what happens? He becomes like his teacher. So the goal of this is to become like Jesus. And that's really the call of discipleship, is we are trying to get as close to Jesus' example as we can possibly get. That's not our goal. Thing we really don't understand what it means to be a disciple or why we're disciples. And so it's going to be difficult uh, because, again, with rehabilitation, if you're injured or something's wrong and you're needing to recover, you're going to have to make some hard decisions. <laughs> you know, if you've injured your arm or you've had a stroke or whatever, you're having to do something to recover. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. And you may have to listen to someone who's trying to push you. And they're not trying to torture you. They're not trying to make things difficult. Because they're trying to get you to recover, right? They're trying to rehabilitate you. And that's like Jesus was teaching here. And all of these things are challenging if you think about them. Uh, we really need to see the good in them. So Jesus challenges how we treat others. And again, I think this section of the sermon is especially focused on living by God's grace. But I really want to ask how you see these instructions. And be honest about that, because I think naturally what we tend to focus on is we very quickly see the burden of these instructions because of the demand we know that it would take to apply these things. So I just want to ask you, do you focus more on the burden or on the blessing in applying these things? You know, when you hear something like, if somebody were to really slap you on the cheek, really, turn the other's way. If somebody were to ask you for your shirt, really give him your coat also. Give to everyone who asks it. You know, it's easy to think like, man, What's going to happen to me if I actually do these things? 
You know, I have to give over the keys to my car, give over the deed of my house. Like, what am I going to have at the end of all this? It's so easy to exaggerate the demand to the point where all I'm focusing on is the burden rather than seeing the blessings. And how I, how I see this really reveals ultimately where I stand in verses 20 through 26. So last week we talked about how Jesus challenges our values and how Jesus in the start of this sermon is not speaking metaphorically when he's pronouncing blessings on the poor, the hungry, the weeping, people who cry. When he's pronouncing woes on those who are rich and well-fed, people whose lives are full of joy and goodness and don't seem to be in any danger whatsoever. You know, he's not speaking metaphorically. But when we are looking at Jesus' Jesus's instructions through the lens of abundance, through the lens of convenience, through the lens of having a consumer attitude about relationships, we are going to focus on the burden. We are not going to see the blessing. But if I'm able to see the blessing in what Jesus teaches in a way that motivates me to apply these things, what that tells me is I'm looking at things from a, from a, uh, a perspective of the blessings he pronounces on the poor. And I'm looking at things from a condition of want and need, not from a position of convenience. And if I apply these things, a part of the blessing is it brings me into the conditions that he blessed. And so the reality is, if I'm going to turn the other cheek to someone who just slapped me, that's going to put me into the condition where I'm not laughing anymore. I'm weeping. If I'm giving to someone who's asking me of something and they're taking away what I think is mine, well, I'm going to have to think harder about the blessing that God pronounces on the poor. And realize, you know what? Maybe it's a blessing for me to lose my resources to do what Jesus says. And even if I lose a lot for the sake of following what Jesus says, it's a blessing because I'm closer to him, right? So the reality is, if you kind of wonder, well, how do I become more like these values? How do I adapt these values practically from verse 20 through 23? It's his instructions here. Jesus' instructions are the direct bridge that leads us back to the values from the beginning of his sermon. And how do I see these as a blessing? I think I've got to be careful how I qualify these things. So I think when we see the burden or the danger that this may put me in, the vulnerability, it's tempting to start qualifying things, right? Like, oh, he didn't really mean this, or, you know, he didn't really mean this situation, and man, i got to be wise about this, and, and wisdom would handle it this way instead. But I think we have to be careful to first, based on verse 35 and 36, we have to see this through the lens of God's character and through the character of Jesus. So we need to be merciful just as the Father is merciful. We have to recognize that these instructions are a self-portrait of God's character and Jesus' character. So let's think about this. How much of what we have is given to us from God? How much of what the world has is given by God? And beyond even what's physically given, how about breath? about literally like every waking moment, you know, that we are being held in God's hands. And it's so easy to be blind to how, how much God is giving. So God is giving everybody life. God is giving everyone in the world resources, breath. How many people take those blessings that God is actively choosing deliberately, deliberately to give? How many people give God a proper return for all of that generosity? How many people properly thank God for all that he's given, or bother to serve him. I mean, taking it even further, how many people take those blessings and they encourage other people to not believe in God? And they think it's a joke to believe in God. And they would encourage others to denounce God and to not believe in him. Does that 
embitter God? Does that stop him from giving? Does that demotivate him? Think about Jesus. You know, how many people that Jesus healed stopped to serve him and become his disciples? You know, there's an example in Luke chapter 17 where there are 10 lepers who come to Jesus. He heals them all for free. Tells them to go to the temple, offer what the law of Moses commanded for their cleansing. Along the way, as they're cleansed, only one returns to thank Jesus, a Samaritan. And Jesus says, where are the nine? Did nobody come back to give God the glory except this foreigner? And I think that's just kind of how things were in Jesus' ministry, is Jesus would pour himself out and give grace upon grace. And the reality is there were very, very few people who actually properly responded to what he gave. Think about Jesus when he was being spit on, punched, slapped, whipped. Did that embitter him? Did that demotivate him? Did he stop wanting to give because, well, this clearly is not working. This method of generosity is not producing the right results. No, he kept going. And even on his death, the idea of his death is the solution is give greater grace. Give even more. Draw even closer. So we've got to see these things through the character of the Father and of Jesus. And even a step further, we need to think about it personally with this. How much has God given me? And what return have I really given him? You know, how easily could God get demotivated demotivated by me and how I respond to him? How annoyed and frustrated could God get with me every day? You know, and that's clearly not the picture we get of God's character in the Bible, right? But how easily could God get frustrated with how much he's giving me and how little I'm returning? Again, we've got to see these things through God's character, through Jesus, and think about these things much more personally. Then we can see the blessing of these things more clearly. And verse 32 through uh, 34, where he says, you know, don't love those, don't just love those who love you. Sinners are able to do that. Don't just bless those who bless you. Don't just lend to those whom you expect to receive. Even sinners do those things. Something I think we have to be really careful about is uh, how easily this can seem foolish in our minds without realizing it. There is no shortage of worldly wisdom and shared social media content that tells us how to deal with toxic people. You know, and if you share something like that and, you know, you go by the world's wisdom for how to deal with difficult people, there's also no shortage of people who are going to celebrate that, pat you on the back, encourage you. Do you think Jesus' instructions about loving your enemies and someone slapping you and letting them continue to walk all over you, is that going to get much traction on social media? You know, are people going to celebrate you for saying, you know, I think I want to keep giving more to someone who's actually hurting me and taking advantage of me. Obviously, there's wisdom at some point, and there is obviously a wisdom at some point to having boundaries. But what I'm meaning is, I think we have to be really, really careful to realize that when we're inundated with worldly wisdom, we've got to realize that it's not going to align with Jesus' teaching. This is not the kind of thing that the world is going to respect. This is not the kind of thing that the world is going to encourage. And if we're not careful, we're going to forget that Jesus even said these things when it matters the most. We are very prone, naturally, to want to protect ourselves. And there's, again, some goodness to learning some wisdom of how to handle difficult relationships. We've got to start here. And we learn wisdom through application, not through qualifying things to a point where we're just not doing these things ever and they lose their meaning, right? All right, so 27 through 34, we're going to think about the reality of grace here. 
Um, Jesus tells me to give grace actively. He says to do this to my enemies. I'm to love my enemies, not just to, uh, in some shallow way, give some gift, but inwardly still be harboring ill feelings. You know, when Jesus uses the term love, he is talking about something self-sacrificing, but also internal in its genuineness. He says to do good for those who hate me. He tells me to bless those who are cursing me and to pray for those who mistreat me, who abuse me. You know, the solution isn't just to be passive. The solution isn't just, okay, they're not treating me the right way. Let's kind of set up some guardrails here. This challenges, I think, what it means to be genuine. Are you going to naturally want to respond this way to the people doing these things? <laughs> no way. No. This challenges what it means to be genuine. You know, oftentimes we think what it means to be genuine is I have to be emotionally compelled to take action. I've got to feel it in my heart. I've got to have an emotion kind of connecting with my action. You are never going to feel emotionally compelled to do these things. Here's what it means to be genuine and authentic. What it means to be genuine according to Jesus' teaching is you strive to do what you truly believe is right even when it's not what you feel like you want to do. To be genuine is to strive to be and do what you truly believe is right, even when your emotions are telling you something else and the situation is telling you something else. It is to, it is to strive to be and do what you truly believe is right and to be honest about the struggle along the, along the way. Not one of us here is in some kind of different boat you know, we're all in a situation where this is a struggle, where this is not natural. Not one of us, not one of us, including me, has a handle on this and is perfectly able to do this. So we have to strive to do what we believe is right. We've got to believe this is the right thing. And even when our emotions are compelling us to do something else, we choose this. That's what it means to be genuine, right? This is true self-control. Self-control in the kingdom of God is not about our dietary choices. Self-control in the kingdom of God is not just self-mastery. It is about choosing what elevates others rather than what elevates myself. You want biblical self-control? You want Christ-like self-control? Then you choose what elevates others rather than what elevates you. And you choose to do that when you passionately disagree with what Jesus says. This is not theoretical. It's not impersonal. It's not applied at a distance. You know, so notice again verse 28, uh, verse uh, 29 rather. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. You know, is that impersonal? Is that that you read an article that upset you? That you read something political that you disagree with? Or some other teacher of false doctrine is saying something that's not true? Or No, it's, it's not just you're aware of someone somewhere who doesn't fit with what you believe. This is something very personal. And if you continue on, whoever wants to take away your garment, don't withhold your tunic. You know, is that impersonal? Is that something happening at a distance? Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. You know, Jesus isn't teaching theory. Jesus is teaching about personal interactions that we need to be encountering. Think about the kind of people Jesus is equipping us to form relationships with here. Think about how much this guards your heart. 
against bitterness and resentment and frustration to choose to respond in these ways. Again, when we, when we feel passionately to do otherwise. And I want you to think how often these principles can be applied. You know, I don't think anyone in here has had anyone slap them in the face this past week. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm probably right about that. I don't think any of us have had anyone literally take our clothes off of our back. So I think we need to think really carefully about this. You know, throughout this sermon, Jesus is laying out principles. We have to digest these things and think carefully about them. How do you feel when someone doesn't consider your feelings? When you feel like someone has said something to step over your emotions? How often do you get frustrated with people who are close to you? How often do you get annoyed with your kids? With your spouse? How much do you get annoyed with people you work with at work every day? How often do you get frustrated with your literal neighbors? I mean, the people who actually live around you. Maybe some annoying things they do or noise they make. You know, you think about how easily, how easily annoyed we get by the people around us. How easily frustrated we become with little things. I think that is the direct application of this. You know, sure, we may not have people directly slapping us in the, on the face. But if Jesus says we need to be turning the other cheek, being slapped, how much more when I'm just annoyed? <laughs> if I need to give my coat to someone who wants to take my shirt, then how much more if I feel like I'm being wronged and someone's not considering me and they want my time, they want my energy, I just need to give it to them. You know, I think the opportunities to apply this are constant. Again, Jesus is not talking about theory. He's not talking about anything impersonal. Jesus is trying to equip us for things we struggle with, that we really struggle with every single day and with relationships that we are constantly confronted with, deeply involved in. And so if this is the standard of how I should treat my enemies, I want you to think how much more my brethren. I've brought this up in classes and I think sermons before, but I think for some reason it's easy to have a double standard. I think sometimes loving people who are in the world can in this weird way feel heroic. Um, but I think a lot of times loving brethren does not feel very heroic. It shouldn't feel heroic in the people with people in the world either. I think that's just prideful. We've got to be careful that we don't have this double standard where, you know, we'll be super kind and merciful to people in the world. It's like, oh, they don't know better. But then for brethren, all of a sudden, it's a totally different standard. No. If I'm to love my enemies, then how much higher a standard should there be with my brethren? If I'm not willing to be patient with my brethren, what that signals is I am most definitely not patient with my enemies, right? So we have to think, if this is how I'm to treat people who are unreasonable to me in the world, my enemies, then that should apply to my brethren. It should apply to my wife. It should apply to your husband. It should apply to your children. And again, are your children going to learn this from the world? Is this going to be taught in schools? <laughs> They're going to learn this from movies and TV or books they read? No. So the onus then, the, the obligation is we have to be careful to not only live out these things as an example, but to be careful to teach these values as well. You know, how often are your kids going to get annoyed with other kids? How often are your kids going to get frustrated with ways they're being overlooked, mistreated? We have to step in and teach these difficult things. Again, this is not how the world operates that's emphasized in verse 32 through 34 again. 
you know, if you want to see how the world loves, it's evident, it's apparent. There's certainly some nuggets of wisdom in there. But the counsel of the cross is foolishness to the world. So 35 through 38, we'll read this again. And this is to deal with the kind of expectations we're to have. And this is, I think, more radical than it can seem at first. Let's read this again, 36 through 38. 35 through 38, I'm sorry. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And again, New King James says, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Point here is Jesus refocuses my expectations. You know, the reality is a symptom of works-based thinking comes in our expectations of others. Jesus changes my expectations where I am focusing more on God's grace, on God's promises, and what I can do. You remember at the end of John's Gospel, uh, Peter was being recommitted to Jesus at the end of John's Gospel after he denied him three times. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? says, yes, Lord, I love you, goes over that three times, uh, same amount as his denials. And then as Peter is following Jesus, he says, well, what about that man pointing to John? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus focuses my expectations on what I can do, what I can control with my mind, my heart, my behavior, rather than on other people. And this is challenging. I think this is actually really, really challenging. And it's challenging because this is the rule God lives by. Give and expect nothing in return. So after re-emphasizing, love your enemies. You know, again, don't just tolerate the fact that there's people in the world you don't like. Make your life a little bit harder. You know, be proactive and be personal with it. Love your enemies and lend expecting or hoping for nothing in return. That is the rule of God's character. To give and hope for something in return, that is the way of the world. To give and expect nothing in return is the way of the Lord. I want you to think, how far can this application be taken? What do you think of when you think of giving and expecting nothing in return? You know, what comes to your mind, is it money? To give money and someone says, oh, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. And you say, no, 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 don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And you have this in mind. It's good, right? But I don't think that's fully the full application. You know, or similarly, you think about giving a physical gift, right? You give someone something, a gift to them, and you just, you don't want them to worry about it. You don't want them to have to worry about paying you back. I think that's thinking minimally about this. And I think we really have to think more broadly. What about listening to someone and expecting them to respond to you or respect you more for it? What about serving someone and you are secretly expecting them to respond a certain way? Or you serve in a certain way and you think, I'm going to do this so that other people do this, right? Or how about when I'm just talking with someone and trying to do something with them, expecting them, you're going to respond a certain way to me opening up to you or to me, you know, confessing this to you instead of expecting nothing in return. I think this is often a deep source of frustration with people is really it's the poison of our own self-made expectations we are putting on others. I think if we think about this every day, you know, 
I didn't mention this earlier, but the applications I'm giving, I think really just you've got to think about this for yourself, you know, and, and how often in your life you can notice that you are giving and expecting something and needing, needing to change that. And so how many blessings can come from applying this? If somebody is giving and expecting or hoping for nothing in return, is that person going to be manipulative? If somebody is giving and expecting nothing in return, will they be domineering? <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking that sounded like my car. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for being distracting there. <laughs> but if someone is giving and expecting nothing in return, are they going to get as frustrated with people or as frustrated with relationships? You know, again, if you're, if you're truly going to give and expect nothing in return, and you're focused on God's grace, you're just focused on giving, and to God be the increase, to God be the glory, it is the key to contentment, contentment, to having peace with other people, not having false expectations of others that really are just your own self-made thoughts of others, that they have to jump through hoops for you for, so that you can be satisfied with how they're doing. This is the key to giving people true respect and true freedom. That you can be who you are, where you are, you can make your your decisions, and I'll just do my best to work with you and serve you and be a blessing to you, and I'll take you as you are. This is how God works with people, and this is why God can work with broken people. This is why the Apostle Paul could work with people like the Corinthians in their brokenness. So this last verse, pardon and you will be pardoned. Uh, do not judge. Oh, 36 or 27 before, before the last verse. We're called to become invested peacemakers, not to be withdrawn critics. You know, he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. You know, aren't, aren't people supposed to know <laughs> how bad sin is? You know, didn't Jesus point out to people the seriousness of sin? Didn't he emphasize that through his ministry? He did. But is that where he left people? Did Jesus just point out how filthy people were, how dirty people were, how corrupt people were, and just point that out at a distance? Whenever Jesus pointed out the problem of someone's sin, it was to bring them into God's forgiveness. It was to make it more clear the need for forgiveness, the access to forgiveness. Jesus was not just a distant critic of others. He didn't just see sin from a distance, point it out in a way that was disconnected from a person's life. He rolled up his sleeves. And what Jesus was, he was a peacemaker. We need to be peacemakers who are invested, who can take hits of people wronging us, pardon and forgive everything we can and everything we are doing is to help someone draw closer to the grace of God and be more connected to the forgiveness that is in God's grace. I want you to think then, what is, the, what is the nature and the value of this last promise here? You know, we're supposed to give and expect nothing in return, and yet, verse 38, he says, give and it will be given to you. And I think the idea is this, that God will always give the increase. You know, if we're going to put our faith in God, people will disappoint you. People will fail you. People are not going to live up to your expectations. People are not going to do what you think they should do. People aren't going to do even what they should do, much less what you think they should do. God is not going to fail, though. And so if we're focused on the grace of God, if we're learning to set our expectations there, God will always give the increase. 
And that may not be something that you see with your eyes, but you can have absolute assurance of that. If you give, it will be given to you. And in verse 38, there's an illustration. And I want to think about this like if I had a tin can, and I was putting coffee in this tin can and giving it to you. If I put some in and it reached the surface, and I thought, you know what, I think I can fit more in this. So I press it down, and then I fill it. And I think, well, I think I could fit more in it. So I shake it, and I press it down again, and I put more in it. And then I think, well, that's still not enough, and I just put it on the top, put it on, a, put it in a bag, and I just overflow the bag full of coffee. That's, that's the image. It's not just giving what's adequate in return, but receiving what's more abundant. How do we think about this? And I think this is a helpful way to consider this, is the kind of relationships that God will develop in our lives if we really apply these things the quality of those relationships, the depth of those relationships. You know, the reality is what this is all about is not just how to apply it, but why to apply it. Why does Jesus tell us to do these things? Because this is what it takes to really serve people. You know, did Jesus suffer abuse? Does God up in heaven in his investment in mankind, does God suffer abuse by the majority? Absolutely. But because of God's consistency, because of the consistency of Jesus and his ministry living by this rule, were there people who got it? And was that investment redeemed in the depth of relationships Jesus developed with people like his disciples? Or in the people who sought Jesus after his resurrection through the gospel? The consistency of Jesus applying these things isn't just that he was some super spiritual hero. But this is what equipped him to really serve people. You want to know what it takes to really be a servant? (laughs) To notice people that you're never going to notice otherwise? You do these things. Because if you don't do these things, if you don't love your enemies, if you don't give and expect nothing in return, if you don't know the meaning of really turning the other cheek when you've been slapped and wronged, there's going to be people around you you will never notice. There's going to be conversations you will never have that you could have had. There are relationships you will never develop that you could have and should have developed. And there will be blessings you will never experience because you weren't willing to submit to these instructions. If we apply these things, again, it is a blessing. If we give, it will be given to us. And I really think, again, we don't need to be thinking about this as some kind of financial give and take here. This is God making sure that what we, what we understand and experience in his grace is so personally overwhelming. It just draws us deeper and deeper into applying these things, knowing that God will never let us down, never let us go wanting. So final thought that I want to conclude with. I think there are two ways that we can undermine the grace of God. One of those is when it's taught wrong. You know, it's easy to teach grace in a way that is cheaper and different than what the Bible actually says. And I think we're more familiar with that, you know, that God's grace is undermined, obviously, if if it's taught in a way that's just not biblical. But I think the other way that we undermine the grace of God is more subtle and more dangerous. We don't live it out. You know, as much as we can see that God's grace is undermined if it's being taught in a way that's unbiblical, I think in the same way, we undermine the grace of God when we are not living it out. We undermine the grace of God when people see us as disciples of Jesus, but this is not what they see. 
This is not the kind of commitment they see. This is not the kind of attitude that they see. We undermine the grace of God to each other when we are not applying these things. And when our way of giving in relationships is with a false expectation of return that Jesus would give counsel contrary to. Let's think on these things. You know, none of this is going to happen accidentally. We're going to have to dig deep. We're going to have to remember it and meditate on it. And we've got to really commit to it every day. But if we'll do that, the multitude of applications that we will find will be overwhelming. And the blessings that we will see will be even more overwhelming than that. Let's pray on these things. Our Father, our God, we are so thankful to you for these instructions that Jesus gave his disciples. God, we praise you for your character, that you are a God who lives these things out in a way that is beyond what we can even grasp. How good you are to the evil and unthankful is incomprehensible. Father, you are committed to goodness. You are resolved. You are unfailing. You are totally consistent. You are not a robot. Father, you give and you feel the pain of suffering as a result. You invest and you feel the pain of loss of those who fail to respond with thankfulness and humility. Father, help us to apply these things and to look back on you. Help us to understand as we suffer wrongs quietly and show mercy that we are learning more about your real character, that we are learning more about your emotions and sharing in them. Father, help us to not be withdrawn when we are hurt, but help us to remember you. Help us to remember Jesus. Help us to dig deep into Jesus' words and in his example. Help us to be very careful with the wisdom of the world. Help us to be very careful when we are feeling hurt by others that what we soak in, what we absorb, would first be Jesus' counsel. Help us to be careful to filter the wisdom of the world through the cross, through these things that Jesus commanded us to be and to do. Help us to encourage each other in these things. Father, just bless us to be effective doers. Help these things to sink deep within us, to not just be applied in a shallow manner, but that we would truly have an, have an eagerness, God, to explore these things in depth, to do them as meaningfully as possible, that we would, Father, truly turn the other cheek, that we would allow others to take from us, that we would be generous, that we would love our enemies, that we would bless those who revile us, that we would pray for those who mistreat us, that we would do all of this with discipline and genuineness of heart. Refine us through these things, God, and make us more like you. Help us to be a peaceable people who make peace. Father, please heal us when our hearts are hurting. Heal us, God, when we suffer the danger and the temptation toward bitterness. Help us to always choose grace, God, to choose grace when it matters the most, to choose grace, Father, when we are tempted to be harsh and cruel We are when we are prone to be critical of others and unforgiving. Father, help us to stop in our tracks, to realize, God, how much you've forgiven us and to remember that and to extend that to others. Bless this church to grow in these things, Father, in your son's name. Amen. If there's anything that needs to be brought forward this morning before the church, uh, please make it known while we stand and we sing our invitation song.